This is Data Basement. Hello and welcome to Data Basement. In this week's episode, we have a special guest appearance episode from my friend Anurag. He is starting a new podcast called A-List Podcast, and he focuses on financial crime and analytics. Please enjoy this episode and follow his podcast at A-List on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. In January of this year, ChatGPT became the fastest growing consumer app in the history with 100 million active users. Fraudsters and cybercriminals were some of the early adopters of this technology. Logically, there have been growing concerns from many enterprises around data security and privacy issues surrounding the, these products. Many large US businesses and Wall Street firms have restricted the use of these tools within their organizations. You're listening to the A-List Podcast, and I'm your host, Anurag. Every week, we'll bring you an A-Lister from the field of AI and financial crime prevention. Joining me this week to discuss some of the data security and privacy issues around ChatGPT is my good friend and data security practitioner, Dan Tanakis. Uh, hi, Dan. Uh, welcome to the show. Yeah. Hi, Anari. How's it going? Good, man. Uh, so, it's been a while uh, since we, we spoke uh, last. And then uh, on, on this podcast, uh, we start by introducing our guests. So, uh, our listeners would like to know more about you. So, why don't you start by introducing yourself? Yeah, sure. So, I'm Dan Fernandez. I'm a product manager uh, now focusing on cybersecurity. I've been doing product management for a little over 10 years in a few different industries. I started out in uh, trading technologies uh, kind of work at a, an investment bank. Then I spent some time uh, at a enterprise software company focusing on compliance where we met and collaborated on a number of projects together. And yeah, the focus right now is on uh, data security, more specifically uh, data loss prevention and insider risk. So yeah, that's my current focus day to day. Uh, so Dan, towards the end of the podcast, I also want to ask you about um, what attracted you to cybersecurity and when you made the switch from compliance over to cybersecurity. Um, uh, but uh, you also run a very successful podcast called uh, Database Man. So uh, would you uh, want our audience, would you want to share some with our audience what Database Man is about and uh, how they can get access to it? Sure. Yeah. So Database Man is a podcast about all things data. So that includes uh, data security, analytics, um, current events, uh, recommendations on how to create and market data products and you should be able to find it on Spotify, I think Google Podcast, and most places. I haven't checked all the ones, but yeah, if you uh, search for a data basement on Spotify, definitely find it pretty quick. We will uh, we will also put the links uh, in the description of this uh, podcast uh, to uh, data basement. Do listen to uh, data basement. There's some really interesting uh, episodes there. And if you are like me, if you're like a data junkie like me, you find data interesting, uh, that podcast is is for you. So Dan, today uh, I want to talk to you about, and uh, we did a first episode around ChatGPT uh, uh, and large language models. Uh, we had uh, Tejas Shastri from uh, Trulio, and he was talking about the evolution of large language models. 
Today, I want to focus around the data security and data privacy aspects. Now, uh, uh, there is a lot of buzz uh, around uh, large language models, generative AI. Uh, but when, when we think about the enterprise applications, uh, I mean, people are using it in their private lives, but we, when we think about the enterprise applications, many of the large uh, Wall Street firms have banned the use of ChatGPT or other similar large language models for their employees. But privately, all of these uh, Wall Street firms are working on similar ChatGPT-like uh, LLMs internally. Uh, this is... Uh, Innovation groups are being formed to uh, to understand what could be the applications for uh, enterprise. But I want to understand from you, are there any risks which are leading these firms to believe that use of public uh, large language model um, applications like ChatGPT is risky? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So there, there's a few, and I'm sure we'll get uh, dive deeper into all this in, in, in a lot of depth, but I would say the majority of the risk for most organizations and the primary reason why they're doing this is because of data exfiltration. So as ChatGPT specifically has become popular, the interface entails that the user either asks a question or perhaps tries to uh, summarize information or asks for recommendations on uh, writing code or improving code. And that means that the user ultimately has to upload what could be proprietary data from that enterprise. Uh, so the data exfiltration risk is that they're, according to the at least the initial versions of uh, these tools, uh, the, the privacy guidelines and the expectation for privacy uh, was not very clear. And that's why some enterprises kind of like proactively uh, prevented users from, from starting to uh, use this more widespread. What they have realized, though, is that the productivity associated with them is so great that if they don't allow it, their competitors will, and they may fall behind. So, yeah, I would say initially, uh, data exfiltration is the biggest risk. And then as you start getting into other use cases, like the source code example that I mentioned, uh, you, you may also start seeing uh, other legal challenges associated with, well, was the data used for training these models uh, open source or was it copyrighted and then there's some potential legal liability and this is yet to be determined in the courts because we're in very early stages about uh, this trend and how this industry evolves but there could also be legal implications for organizations depending on uh, where that data came from to train those models so those are probably like the biggest two things to consider in an enterprise when trying to deploy these tools. So um, in my private life, should we, like me and my listeners who exercise similar caution when they're using ChatGPT or MidJourney or other such tools uh, in, our, in, our, in private capacity? Is the risk similar? Yeah, it is actually. And one of the things to consider there is that as I just mentioned at the very beginning, when this was starting to be used by enterprises, there have been changes in uh, the usage agreements for enterprise use cases. So if let's say you have a OpenAI corporate license, you may be able to negotiate certain terms and conditions on how the data that you provide to the tool may or may not be used. However, for the consumer, um, you, you're not going to have that leverage necessarily. So that means that you're at the mercy of those terms and uh, there 
probably going to be biased towards uh, trying to use the data that gets provided as much as possible for improving the service. So you should expect as an individual consumer, probably less privacy than you normally would uh, if you were a large corporation. So what that means for you is that, yes, your your data privacy could be at risk. So if, if you start uh, uploading a lot of personal identifiable information or even health records or other things that may be sensitive, uh, they may not necessarily be protected in the way that you expect. And you can also see that because as the service has been rolled out, you've, you've probably noticed that it's only rolled out in certain countries and it tends to be in countries where uh, privacy regulations are less uh, strict. Um, the other thing that just came out recently uh, earlier this week was the ability to do data analysis. So now uh, if you upload a data set to something like ChatGPT, like an Excel file, it can start to generate visualizations and do some high level data analysis on that data, which is great. But again, you're, uh, if you're uploading your tax information, for example, or any sort of uh, sensitive financial information, which could be great for budgeting, you know, personal use cases like that, you're also not ensured that there's differential privacy being applied, meaning that there's no way to trace that data back to you as a, as a user. Uh, and there's also potential issues with the security of uh, OpenAI or ChatGPT application as a whole. And nothing against OpenAI specifically, but anytime that you develop a web application, anytime you develop any application, there could be vulnerabilities in that application. So that means that um, I think there were a number of reports previously that uh, disclosed that your chat history from ChatGPT was exposed at some point because it was an application vulnerability. So as with anything else, <laughs> once you put something uh, online, uh, it is and it's connected to the internet, it, it, it's possible to get uh, intercepted in some way. So just have to be mindful that you're not, you know, putting very sensitive information until better assurances are available for safeguarding your data. Right. And to, to their credit, to OpenAI's credit and ChatGPT's credit, they have a uh, disclaimer right up front, uh, which warns users not to put any sort of personal information, any sensitive information uh, into those chats. Uh, those chats are most likely being recorded and being trained and retrained in the model. So I think, uh, credit to them, they, they have the disclaimer right in front. We should all exercise caution. Um, this came up in, uh, in, in the discussion, uh, in a prior discussion, some of the data that we enter into these uh, machines, all of the data is being used for trading. And if you do enter private data, uh, a, a, a random user, not necessarily hacking the system, but let's just say asking a set of series of clever questions might start to expose some of the data that was used in training. So if I use my SSN or if I use my credit card numbers or, or other sensitive information, maybe even my address, uh, you know, in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a conversation with uh, these language models, a different user with very smart prompt prompts would start to expose the data that was that, that was being fed into these machine learning models for training. Yeah, exactly right. So um, I, I think if, if I remember correctly, that may be referred to as a prompt hacking, which is exactly what you described. And uh, OpenAI and ChatGPT specifically so what you see when you access ChatGPT is not the raw underlying model. There's a number of safeguards that have been implemented to prevent you from doing things like asking how to do malicious things and, and 
using the language model to generate those. Uh, there's some uh, clever folks, as you described, that have found some limitations in some of those safeguards that eventually allow them to like dig deeper into the 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 prompt mechanism that is blocking and and bypassing that. There's actually, I believe, uh, later in this summer, as part of the DEFCON security conference happening in Vegas, there is a CTF or basically a competition that is has dedicated one of those competitions to just prompt hacking and trying to further expose any potential vulnerabilities with bypassing some of the safeguards that the companies have put in place. Great. So you mentioned this earlier that the productivity that these tools are, are generating is so high that organizations are adopting them. And uh, I think it was two weeks back when Mizuho uh, came out publicly that they have made a uh, chat GPT available to all its employees. I don't know whether it's a private instance or the public instance, but uh, they believe that uh, making this technology available to its employees will uh, op open and will create more innovative uh, solutions and uh, improve. So uh, if an organization does decide to go out and roll out this technology, what are some of the considerations that they should uh, keep in mind? Yeah, that's a great point and a great use case for, um, they're in finance, correct? Uh, yes. Right. So if, if you think about the some of their use cases, if you're a an equities uh, research analyst or you're just looking at large amounts of text data, like in a financial report, um, there's just no way that you're going to be able to scale the, the processing of, even if it's not 100% accurate, like being able to go through hundreds of pages of information and getting a you know, succinct summary, that is the kind of productivity gain from like for them, a potential use case, right? Now, in terms of safeguards and controls, um, the, the first thing to do is to think about how is this application exposed? Is it an internal application to that organization or is it the public facing version of ChatGPT as an example that is being used? Um, obviously there's a lot of organizations that are now using the APIs that are underlying that service to build their own custom applications. And that gives, uh, especially a bank, more freedom to have all the security requirements uh, and you know having to be behind a, a, a VPN or virtual private network to access that application. All that could be a, a great first step for you know building custom applications and expanding the levels of security controls that that company has to that custom application. There are other considerations that briefly alluded to earlier that are more related to potential uh, legal risk. And this can come in two forms. One of it is that internationally, uh, countries seem to be approaching regulation for AI as a whole and specifically for large language models in slightly different ways. So as, as we've seen in the news, there's a, a higher I don't want to say a higher emphasis, but there's a, like a stronger uh, desire from uh, the EU and European countries to really uh, pull the reins on this type of tools and introduce more aggressive, perhaps, or what could be considered more aggressive legislation. So if you're a business and you are uh, ha have a international presence, now you have to also be concerned with, well, do I have operating units in countries where uh, this is not allowed? And then you again, have to segregate usage of the tool by saying in these geographies, it is okay to use, but in this ones, until we figure out the legal situation, uh, we can't really use it. 
Um, the second type of legal problem potentially that can run into is uh, I mentioned uh, legal liability for using copyrighted materials. So one of those very uh, interesting use cases for uh, this large language models is to use them not to replace software engineers, but to augment the skills of a software engineer where you can very quickly iterate and prototype. And even someone uh, that doesn't have software engineering background can just write a prompt, request a specific type of application to be done. And, and that could empower a lot more employees in an organization to write code and to automate uh, tools. Now, the challenge is that a lot of the training that happened for this tool was on publicly available repositories on the internet from websites like GitHub, uh, GitLab. Obviously, there's a number of repository managements out there. And there's a varying number of software licenses that are associated with those projects. So while some of them are fully okay with you repurposing their code in any way, some of them have what are known as copyleft licenses that require for you to open source whatever you derive from that data. So the challenge comes when if you are an organization that is using this to write code, is the code that is being generated by this tool no longer proprietary because it's using uh, software licenses that are meant to be open. And that could introduce all sorts of legal risk for them. So so that could be a challenge for sure. Okay. So, excuse me. So, uh, you know, there's this uh, innovation, there's all this excitement that's surrounding it. And, and I think probably one of the most exciting times, uh, uh, if you're a technologist, if you're uh, excited about data. Uh, they've they've democratized AI. They've made AI consumption of AI very very easy. But uh, you know when we we used to work together, like you said in our in our, in our past, one of the things that you always mentioned was the boring parts of uh, AI. And you actually wrote a very nice uh, LinkedIn post. Uh, I'll see if I can uh, put the link uh, for the post in the in the description. But. He said that with, with all the excitement, we should not forget the boring parts uh, of AI because they are the most important. So would you want to elaborate uh, for our listeners? What are those, those boring parts and why those are so important? Yeah, that's a good point. And and if if you work in those areas, when I say boring, I don't mean that in a, in a <laughs> negative way. It's just the, the, the least, uh, the less uh, exciting, I guess, or it's another way to put it. But um, yeah, so when you think about data governance, uh, for building machine learning models is super important. And while tools like this large language models could prevent your team from having to deal with, let's say, building that foundational model, if you're building any sort of customization for a large language model, you're still on the hook for data, government, data governance. And what do I mean by that? So let's say you want to build a, a custom tailored model for a specific industry or vertical that is relevant to you. So as we know, these are very generalized models. They're trained on all the data. But if you want to say have a healthcare specific uh, chatbot, or you may want to have a, a legal uh, right. expert specific chatbot, you would have to feed it either uh, your own like additional specific industry information or your own data, uh, your, your enterprise's data. So if you want to be able to introduce your own enterprise's data, first you need to figure out where is it? Uh, what is the data that I want to feed? So you'll need to start doing things like data cataloging and inventory. So you have to understand 
where it sits, how often is it updated? Is it relevant anymore? Do I want to feed it into the model? Yes or no? So you, you need to have like that foundational level, uh, level of governance where you first identify your assets. The other thing you have to figure out is data quality metrics. So if, if it's, uh, again, beyond how long is it updated? Is it consistent? Can you trust feeding very large volumes of data into this model to create that customization? Because whatever you train is like, like they say, right? Garbage in, garbage out. So if you don't have good data quality going in, then the output and the results that you get may not be as great. Um, lastly, uh, it's also important to think about model performance. And again, even though some of it is abstracted from you as a user because OpenAI or Google or Microsoft or whoever's built or uh, the Facebook implementation, whoever's building it, they're taking care of that foundation model. You still have to see what kind of results you're getting. Uh, is it having uh, adverse output to what you expect? Is it is the accuracy declining over time? Why or why not? If you even create a custom application, as we see, there's a lot of iteration with uh, GPT-3, GPT-3.5, potentially GPT-3.4, like at which point do you migrate or transition from one version to the next? What is your criteria for migrating from one version to the next? So all those things are very important when you have something in production that you have to always think about. Yeah. So it's it's great uh, for, uh, uh, you know, uh, average people like us to use it uh, uh, in our personal lives, but when when we think of enterprise applications, one of the considerations that apply to uh, machine learning uh, models still still are relevant. There's, that hasn't changed. You still have to do the think of it as boring or the most important parts. You, you still have to uh, do the data cataloging, uh, ensuring that there's no bias in data, and you have to uh, you know have a model governance and model performance to just just the way you would you would have done for a regular machine learning models. Well, that's, yeah, exactly. That, yeah. So, uh, Dan, uh, I just want to switch a little bit before we, we, we wrap up. We are coming towards the end of the podcast. And I, I wanted to talk to you about uh, cybersecurity. Uh, so, I think in, in your introduction, you said uh, you worked in compliance, you worked in investment banking, uh, but you decided to make the switch uh, a few years ago to cybersecurity. One is I wanted to understand from you what was the driver, why why cybersecurity, and then if if someone, uh, one of our listeners, let's say, uh, wants to pursue a career in cybersecurity, what resources are available and what steps could they take? Yeah, sure. So, for me, it was a it was a combination of probably two things. The first one, uh, to your point, as you alluded to earlier, being a data nerd, working on analytics uh, applications, machine learning type applications. It seemed to be a, a, a very logical transition because a lot of the cybersecurity problem is a data problem. So you, you tend to have way too much telemetry with uh, endpoints and servers and network data and threat intelligence and how do you make sense of all these things? So I figure that all the experience in uh, work done previously, specifically around natural language processing uh, in the compliance world and anomaly detection, was easily transferable to to this industry because they're they're trying we're trying to solve the the same kind of problems which is find me unusual activity find me unusual events based on some combination of criteria so that was probably one of the things 
The other thing is that in working in compliance, one of the things that you realize is that, especially with large organizations, there's a lot of security controls. There's a lot of uh, regulation associated with uh, protecting data. So it kind of opened my eyes to, th there seems to be a lot of work associated with making sure this data that we're consuming, I guess, at the time has to be secure. So that kind of piqued my interest and I started to think about, okay, how, how, what is the best way to uh, work towards securing that data? And I guess it led me uh, to a threat intelligence uh, a company that was looking at uh, internet infrastructure registration data. And now, yeah, more focused on uh, security specific to data security. Uh, it, in terms of resources, I guess, sorry. Um, so I guess it's hard. So one of the, so it's not hard to transition. It's hard to figure out what you want to focus on. So uh, one of the great things about security is that it is actually possible for someone from any background to transition because there's so many areas uh, associated with security. So if you're on the compliance side, you could, uh, you can, there's like a, a function within information security that focuses on governance and risks and controls. So that, for example, would be another very logical transition for someone to make. If you are a engineer, hands-on uh, developer, again, your skills are most likely transferable. What you have to do is maybe start thinking about differently of, do you want to focus on the application security side, uh, meaning uh, uh, secure software development, or do you want to work on building tools to identify malicious activity? So I would say for anyone thinking into cybersecurity, regardless of the background, there's plenty of opportunities. I would say start thinking about which of those infosec paths you want to pursue, and then there's plenty of uh, resources. And, and I'll share with you too, uh, there's actually a tool that is almost like a career navigator for cybersecurity that gives you the different options. And I think once you figure that out, uh, it's all a matter of like then finding resources for achieving that particular discipline. Um, but yeah, answering to yourself, like what do you want to focus on, I think is, is the most important question. Great. Dan, uh, thank you. It was a pleasure having you today. Thank you for sharing your opinion uh, uh, and uh, taking this time out. Yeah, of course. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to uh, chat again.